This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. This is where we gather together electronically uh, every week to have conversations with thinkers and leaders. Uh, Some of you might uh, already join us on the other podcast, the Russell Moore podcast, where we're teaching through uh, the book of Genesis right now, answering um, ethical questions uh, that some of you have, and uh, featuring our weekly program, The Cross in the Jukebox, where we look at country music through the prism of uh, religion and faith and the gospel. But here on Signposts, this is where we have conversations looking for pointers toward uh, grace, uh, the grace that uh, Walker Percy would call a signpost in a strange land. And today, I've been looking forward to today's program for so long because some of you who follow the my books of the year every year uh, might remember that on this year's list, uh, one of them was the book uh, Country Music, which is the, the book that uh, by Dayton Duncan and Ken Burns that went along with the uh, docuseries, PBS docuseries, uh, Country Music by the same name. And I watched the documentary, was riveted by it. I rewatched it again all, I don't know what is it, 16 hours? I watched the whole thing again in preparation for this conversation, was riveted again, and found myself tearing up at times and laughing at other times. And the book is the same way. It's it's something that I would find myself the second time through the documentary, having the book with me so that I could highlight uh, sections. Uh, for instance, I'm just, just give you a, a little bit of a, a sample here. Uh, the section about George Jones, you all know I love George Jones, uh, has a quote from Brenda Lee that I love. She says, well, I think the trials and tribulations that George went through had everything to do with this music. I think when he was hurting, you could hear it in a song. And I always say, George didn't sing country songs. George was a country song. And then uh, a little bit later, she uh, you, you have another contrast between Tammy Wynette and Loretta Lynn that I laughed out loud when I was uh, reading it because... Uh, they quote Jeannie Seeley as saying, Timmy's songs were always about standing by your man and treating your man right and being there for him. And yet she divorced several times. Loretta was always threatening, don't come home drinking, don't do this and I'll do that. But she always stayed with her man. So I kind of thought they wrote each other's songs. I mean, there, there, there's just so much uh, poignancy and cultural insight in this documentary and in this book and in the album that has... Uh, really a, a curated walk through the history of country music. And so I'm really excited. We have with us today on Signpost, Ken Burns, who's the producer and director of this documentary, as well as so many, uh, Civil War, uh, which uh, which many of you have seen and which I also 
uh, love, not only for the content, because it reintroduced my fellow Mississippian Shelby Foot uh, to the rest of the world. Uh, Vietnam, the Roosevelt's, jazz, baseball, just a whole list of uh, award-winning films. And Dayton Duncan, who's the writer and the producer, he's award-winning, uh, Emmy award-winning, and the author of 13 books. So the, the documentary we're talking about today, Country Music, is an eight-episode uh, series on on this art form, on country music. And it, uh, it came out in September of uh, 2019, and uh, the two of them are absolutely uh, brilliant observers of so many different aspects of American life. And I was expecting, uh, I told a friend the other day who had said a, he's a baseball enthusiast, and he said, I was watching the baseball uh, series, trying to find holes in it. Uh, and I said the same thing about this. Uh, at the end of it, I said, I, I can't imagine how this could have been done better. So Dayton and Ken, welcome to Signpost. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. When, uh, when, when Sometimes when you hear people talk about country music who don't know much about country music, you'll hear the same sort of uh, caricature. Uh, oh, somebody who loses his dog and loses his wife and loses his job. And it's just, uh, it's just the sad sort of, um, whining, uh, kind of music. And one of the things that's really interesting in this documentary is from the very beginning, how you show all of these different influences that country music really is sort of a meeting place of all sorts of influences in, in American life. Were you surprised uh, by that when you started uh, working through this project? I, I think in some respects we were, but we're also not surprised by the fact that any art form, a musical art form, which is trying to reflect uh, artistically human experience, it's very easy to sort of in silo and categorize the different forms and think never the twain shall meet. Where in fact, as you point out, there's there's no borders, there's no silos uh, in music. Everybody's borrowing from everybody else. Just to take one example, the Mount Rushmore of country music, of early country music, would have to include the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers and uh, Hank Williams and Johnny Cash and Bill Monroe. All of those had African-American mentors. All of them were steeped in some form or aspect of the blues that added to their own chops, if you will, their own experience, and just made their music better. There's no, there, there are no borders or passports that are required, uh, no immigration restrictions in, in the forms of music because they are about human expression. And I think it is unfortunate that in our attempts to label and categorize, we sometimes denigrate the forms and particularly country music to be about my hound dog or the six pack of beer or pickup truck or whatever. This music is dealing with fundamental human events and trying to make sense of them. And as Wynton Marsalis, who is a jazz player, says in our film about country music, you know, this is about the joy of birth, the sadness of death, a broken heart, getting right with God, what I did to my old lady, what she did to me. All of these things are fundamental, elemental things that everybody can appreciate. I mean, when Hank Williams said, I'm so lonesome, I could cry, there is no one on earth that does not know what he is talking about. And he is addressing fundamental human things. It isn't just 
a novelty. Are there novelty things? Yes, but they're in every form. They're in jazz. They're in R&B. They're in, you know, rock and roll. But the main part is the human heart and getting access to these impossible questions that not only art, but our faith tries to tackle and to answer. And the merger of them is where we get these powerful, powerful emotions. You know, one of the things that comes up uh, often, and it comes up a lot in this uh, in this documentary and in the book, is uh, this question of identity uh, when it comes to even what the art form is. I, I think about that uh, famous moment uh, where Alan Jackson is at the CMA Awards, and he's uh, George Jones has been uh, kicked off of the uh, off of the, the the itinerary for that night, and Alan Jackson gets up. And the YouTube clip is is viral. He gets up and sings Papa Top as they asked him to, and then merges right into Choices, which is what Jones had been asked to do in this tribute uh, to the older tradition. And the crowd just went went wild. He walked off the stage. That's often um, a conversation here about whether or not countries drifted from its roots, or whether it's returning to its roots, or whether it's stuck in a rut, and so forth. What would y'all say is the common Theme that would link, say, the Carter family and Hank Williams and Rascal Flatts and Taylor Swift. Uh, this is Dayton, and I, I think what unites country music, you know, uh, in 16 hours, I'm glad you couldn't find anything wrong, but, there, you know, there's a lot of things that we couldn't put uh, into it, even at 16 hours. And luckily, because we only had, had to make tough choices, we only chose the best, the the cream of the crop. You could make a 16-hour film on really bad country songs, and uh, we chose not to. But I, I think what unites them when it's at its best, as Ken just said, at its best, country music unites music, which is, as Wynton Marcel said, the art of the invisible. It goes right to your heart. It doesn't go through your brain. It goes right to your heart. It And a really good melody with the English language at its best, which is poetry, distilled things down into a few lines. And if you get that combination of a good tune and a good lyric that is going directly into your heart, you have a powerful, powerful delivery system. So what unites all of those things over generations? And that, that you know, as as our film showed, there were trends to go a little more pop sometimes, go back to its roots. You know, rock and roll hit, and they had to adjust to you know for that. But but they give birth to rock and roll actually through rockabilly. So there'd be trends and fads and other things, but underlying it or right in the center of it is that notion that this is language at its distilled and most basic, and melody at uh, its most memorable. And I think anytime you're doing that, you're doing a good country song. And it doesn't matter which decade of which century it occurs in. I was really glad that you covered, I've talked about uh, for years, this um, this dichotomy with Hank Williams Sr. with I Saw the Light, uh, and especially that anecdote, and you, and you talk about it in this documentary of, of uh, near the end, riding around uh, Broadway with uh, with Minnie Pearl and saying, there, there ain't no light, I don't uh, see the light. 
But I also thought it was interesting. You quote uh, Wynton Marsalis in the documentary talking about that Saturday night, Sunday morning uh, dynamic that goes on in country music. And he says uh, in the documentary, it's because you have two of the most uh, primal forces in humanity, sex and religion. Uh, that are both there. So there are some people, I think, who when they hear, you know, Hank Williams singing Honky Tonkin and I Saw the Light or uh, Willie Nelson going uh, in a concert from Whiskey River right into Amazing Grace. Uh, Do you think that that dynamic tells us anything about the larger uh, cultural uh, reality of of religion in America? Of course it does. It's it's central. And this is not even just religion. It's just individuals trying to negotiate, you know, uh, the reality of life, which is none of us get out of here alive. And so what are we going to do with it? And we've got these temptations. We're drawn here and we're drawn there. And, you know, when we made our series on jazz that came out in 2001, one of the biggest things in the first episode is the tension between Saturday night and Sunday morning. That is to say between, you could just say the sinner and the saint or the person that's out carousing and having a good time. And then the person who uh, is being dragged, Rodney Krause says, by the ear, by an ant to church the next morning. Um, All of these are two sides of the same coin. And they don't, there aren't just sinners and saints between people. As we know from our own faith and we know from our own art, the most complicated Part of it is negotiating the fact that these impulses exist within us and all of our lives is a constant and vigilant negotiation, uh, regardless of, uh, of our, our faith and regardless of the art form that we happen to be drawn to. And I, I just think it's such a wonderful thing. That tension uh, produces, of course, a smile of recognition, but sometimes that tension can be so so deep and profound. You think of Chris Christopherson um, at, at Reverend Snow's uh, Evangel Church, and you know suddenly, you know he's he's probably abusing drugs, and certainly is carousing, and late, and all of a sudden he's there on a Sunday morning, and he he's inspired, and something happens in him, and then of course you have you know the great you know the hillbilly Shakespeare Hank Williams who who's you know wrestling with despair in the same quantities as the joy. He can say, you know, I got a hot rod Ford and a $2 bill and I know a place right over the hill, you know, Hey, good looking. How's about cooking something with me? He's the guy who wrote, I'm so lonesome. I could cry. Mm. And uh, don't forget. Uh, I think one of the other great examples of it, and I, I think this is true of country music, that some of the really great artists you mentioned, George Jones, um, Russell and um, another great example of it, but an even greater one, I I think, and the major character in our film is Johnny Cash, who wanted first, more than anything, he promised his mama he would be a gospel singer after his older brother was killed in a horrible accident. His older brother wanted to be a minister, and so Johnny told his mama that his contribution was going to be he'd be a gospel singer. And of course, he you know went into Rockabilly and everything. And as soon as he got his chance to have control of an album that he could do himself, he did a, a number of hymns and gospel songs. And as his daughter Roseanne Cash, who herself is a great artist and writer, mentions, in every one of his concerts, he 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 would sing, "I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die" in Folsom Prison Blues. And in that same concert would also sing, were you there when they crucified my Lord? 
So it's, you know, it is that we're those artists who can tap into that. It's, we want, we like to call it a, a dichotomy, but it's not, it's a unified thing within human beings that we're, that, that we fail and we, you know, let people down and we do the wrong, wrong thing, but we're also capable of something higher at the same time. And great artists are the ones that can really touch into that. And I think country music, again, at its best, really puts its finger right, you know, on that spot, you know, where those two things intersect. You mentioned Johnny Cash, and uh, I'm I'm a huge Johnny Cash fan and always have been. But one of the things that I'm curious about is why does Johnny Cash seem to almost singularly transcend categories? And I I don't think that that's just the case with this later period with the Robert Rubin albums and singing Nine Inch Nails. But if you look back in the 60s, he, he seemed to have a constituency with uh, rednecks and hippies, as one person put it. He could be in the same place and have people who, who were completely on opposite sides of the Vietnam War, everything else, who could who still love Johnny Cash. Why? This this is the great thing. Dayton's gotten into it. It's the reconciling factor of great art, the ability to hold in tension these two seemingly opposing things, but are actually part of the same uh, dynamic. And so you have that uh, you know, we were very interesting people when we told them we'd work on country music, they kind of rolled their eyes and were surprised, like, why would we do that? And I don't know anything about country music. And after they watched the series, they'd say, I hadn't realized how much I did know, which means people were going through. And I, th- of course, in my life, the person who got through more than anyone else was Johnny Cash, uh, because he crossed over. He had a natural sympathy for a, a natural curiosity about all forms of American music. And that, of course, then plugged him into all of the various genres, which our industry, commerce and convenience, you know, is happy to keep separate. You know, Billboard doesn't have a, a chart of everything. It has a country chart and has a rhythm and blues chart and has a rock. You know what I mean? So he was connected to Bob Dylan. He was connected to the rest of the Greenwich Village folk scene. He was interested in the plight of Native Americans. He'd been trained by Gus Cannon, so he knew a lot about the blues and the early jug band stuff that Gus was doing 30 years before in the 20s. And I think I I just coincidentally happened to work in a record store at the end of the 60s and the early 70s in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And, you know, besides the novelty, which we all enjoyed for its wink-wink, Okie from Muskogee, there was nothing bigger than Johnny Cash. It just, he did not, I mean, you put him in, you put his records in the country section, but you knew that he was a protean figure who sat astride all of the disciplines. And it's what we know about all great artists. They, whatever it is, whatever styles they have, whatever they work in, their work is is much bigger than that. And you could say that perhaps in, rock and roll and pop with the Beatles. You could certainly say that with the great painters and the great composers in classical music. They just defy, you know, Duke Ellington, defy category. And that's a wonderful thing because we spend our lives as human beings. We waste a huge part of our lives as human beings making distinctions, black and white, young and old, rich and poor, north and south east and west, gay and straight, all this stuff we want to say how different we are in which, in the end, all of this art, particularly in country music, is saying we're God's children, period. 
You mentioned Merle Haggard. I I went to one of his last uh, concerts, concert at the Ryman uh, here, and and as in many of his concerts, but maybe with a special poignancy, he talked about his dad uh, there, and of course, Oki from Muskogee, his dad being called an Oki and and uh, and looked down upon in California. It seems to me that a common theme uh, in this documentary is creativity coming out of that kind of powerlessness. And I think that's true with blues. It's true with jazz. It's true across the categories. Powerlessness, but a powerlessness that doesn't tip over into victimhood or resentment, but into creativity. Do you think that's so? Absolutely. I think so from the, yeah, absolutely. You know, as we say from the start of our film and book that this is a, this is an art form but it came out of the desire of people, black and white, who felt that they were either looked down upon or forgotten and disparaged, uh, and who knew the hardest of, of, of times. And through their songs, they both found a voice, but also, for some of the artists, found an economic way up and out of the economic despair that they might have been uh, brought up in. And then they, you know, uh, Okies were, you know, another example of that. The, you know, we covered the Okies when we did our film on the Dust Bowl as well and followed people dusted out of Oklahoma and, and uh, Colorado and Kansas and parts of Texas arriving in California and being treated as scum. Oki was a, you know, uh, was uh, the the worst thing you could call somebody, and and suddenly they're they're looked down that that way, and 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 they still, generations later, felt it. And Merle, though he was not an Oki in that sense, he was born in California, but his but his parents were and older uh, siblings were Okies, and he felt that sting. And when he was talking about it, you know, his daddy was trying to find a place for them to live. And this woman said, well, I've got this empty refrigerator, you know, box car. You know, if you, if you wanted to, a person wanted to work hard, could probably fix it up anything, but I don't know any Okie that, that wants to work hard. And as Merle remembered, he said, well, ma'am, I don't know an Okie who won't work. Um, and so he felt that. And uh, in his uh, his life, like so many others, he he, he turned his life into uh, into into art and into music from being a prisoner and being an outcast. Yeah, I think that's the key, is that this this adversity is itself a creative impulse. The friction that's created by poverty, from adversity, from difficulty, is in fact the part of creativity that's so important. Um, We'd like to think of our lives as the best points, but in fact, more of us are defined by how we respond to those difficult times. And I I, I think the unifying and also to me kind of flabbergasting fact of the entire arc of this is just the amount of poverty, the greatest of the great uh, came out of, or the adversity they faced in the course of their lifetime, which was the grist for this creative mill, this transcendent creative mill. I mean, even Dolly Parton, who we think of as, you know, she's she's up there on Mount Rushmore with, you know, one of the greatest singer-songwriters and 
never has hit a wrong note and is one of the great businesswomen of all time. But she's born in an East Tennessee holler in which they paid the doctor who came to deliver her with a sack of cornmeal and that she she bought the first TV set for her family. I mean, this this kind of stuff gives you the metal to be able to produce this sort of stuff. And I'm not sure whether that life of where everything goes right is, in fact, um, the great producer of art the way we know that is. And it, it's united from the very beginning. Some of it is depression and it's enforced off sort of action. But some of it's just circumstance of people before and after the depression of just poverty who turn themselves into the greatest of, of our country artists. You know, one of the things that was interesting to me in watching this documentary all together, uh, all at once, is it's not just that that's in the background, because there's a theme that shows up in just repeated biographies of these artists that's very similar, which is it almost reminds me of the uh, biblical pattern of the prophet going out to the wilderness and speaking to the remnant and coming back, because what you have is this sense of whether it's uh, Johnny Cash at, at really multiple points or outlaw country, Christofferson, Willie Nelson, Waylon, and and so forth. Then on to Marty Stewart and, um, and, and Roseanne Cash and others, there's this sense of coming up against the Nashville establishment or expectation and being almost cast out uh, and then returning uh, after, after learning to be oneself. Uh, and to and to find one's own uh, voice, it seems that that happens just repeatedly uh, in the lives of these artists. I think that's absolutely true. We wouldn't have country music without commerce. Uh, we're not going to know about it unless there's a technology uh, called radio, and people are encouraged to buy sets, and you you buy a set because you want to hear more of that music that your neighbor had, or etc. Uh, etc. Et on to buying records, on to buying CDs, and all of that. Um, so there's always going to be, as Dayton was saying earlier, these commercial pressures and tendencies. And what's so interesting is that some of the great country music is produced out of those commercial directions. Let's not forget, you know, George Jones, uh, nothing could be more national sound and country politan in, in a later period than the kind of full uh, effect overproduction some of the purists uh, complained about. And, you, and you're not going to pull out uh, George Jones in, in any list because of that. But we do find that people become aware, sometimes painfully aware, that commerce has overtaken the creativity and that, as someone in our film says, if you could stamp out the last hit, uh, you know, over and over again, then you'd be, uh, you know, Alan Reynolds says you could, you could just do this. But of course, it would die on the vine. And so what you have is the continual creative revitalization that often does take uh, some years in the wilderness or at least a stubborn obstinacy that I'm not going to go in this direction, I'm going to go in that direction. And turns out that people will respond to authenticity wherever it, it is found. It may be in, to extend this example, it may be in a, in a mega church of, of 10,000 people, or it may be in a, a Sunday, you know, little tiny country church with, uh, you know, a dozen people attending. It, you've got the same access to, to the material, to the good stuff. It's 
question of how you're going to use it. And so I think that was one of the inevitable tensions. But again, it's reconciled in this story, not our story, but the larger human story, by the fact that we keep trying to make uh, duality of things that aren't. Mm. Yeah, I think, and I think that's a very, well, it's a very human thing, but also very uh, American thing of just not wanting just to repeat the past. That's also an artistic thing. Uh, the commerce wants to just sort of say, oh, this, th- this is a hit now. And so we just keep doing that and there's no risk and we'll make, make money. But if you're an artist, you want to say, I have something I want to say. And also, if you're an American, you know, we're all about experimentation and our our whole nation is an experiment. If we thought we ought to just repeat what, you know, repeat what uh, preceded us, we would be still uh, uh, part of the Commonwealth of Great Britain. Uh, you know, so that's partly partly who we are, too, I think, as uh, Americans. And I think that country music and jazz are two uniquely American musical art forms. And it's because it comes from both the complicated history that we have and the different cultures that we have and the mix of those, uh, of those things. And in that mix is where uh, chemical reactions occur and great art, you know, springs forward. I think my favorite moment in the documentary and in the book is when uh, Loretta Lynn is told that she can't, uh, that when she presents the male vocalist of the year to Charlie (laughs) Pride, my fellow Mississippian, African-American superstar artist, that she should step back because audiences wouldn't want a white woman and a black man seeming to be close. And she instead leaned over and hugged him and said later, this is just amazing quote you can't let people tell you what to say and where to stand uh, this is this is why i love this woman <laughs> oh isn't that great uh, that's a great moment there are thousands of reasons why we love loretta lynn and that's one of them i mean she is continually astonishing just from the quality of her voice and uh, spectacular compositions uh, that she's done or the songs that she's sung to just this insistence on on being uh, an individual and not being sort of pulled by the particular current of the moment. And thank goodness that we have that. I think for for many of the viewers of country music, um, I think they were surprised that they weren't looking at some, you know, dusty old twangy thing that had been consigned to the, the, the backwaters, but, but something that was vibrant. I mean, when you meet Mother Maybell, and Sarah Carter, when you meet Kitty Wells, when you meet uh, Patsy Cline, when you meet Loretta, when you meet Dolly, when you meet all the other women that we brought up today, Jeannie Seeley, Bobby Gentry, we haven't talked about. These, these are women that are prefiguring the most contemporary conversations we're having about women. Nobody's saying me too, but you know, we finished our film, we swear, uh, before the Me Too movement sort of got started, and yet people would come to us and said, oh boy, that was really smart of you to plan that. Like, as if we planted it, and we go, no, this is just the way history rhymes. And uh, if you sort of have a sense that um, these are these, uh, you know, just uh, country women in the kitchen in aprons, they may have aprons, but they are not uh, necessarily staying in, in the kitchen, and they are transcending uh, look 
Loretta Lynn is singing, as you brought up, uh, Dr. Moore, Don't Come Home a Drinking with Lovin' on Your Mind. Nobody in rock and roll or folk or any other place where you'd expect a kind of foothold of women's liberation, she wouldn't have called it that, nor would her fans, but saying, look, stop. <laughs> this is a complicated, complicated uh, dynamic, and this is coming out of country music. So, you know, this kind of... Uh, idea of a backwards, kind of too conservative, uh, stuck in its old ways form of music is just completely belied by the revolutionary kind of, you know, gobsmocking quality of so much of the great creative work that has come out in each in each era, in each generation. Hmm. Well, I have one last question because I could talk to y'all for 18 hours longer than the documentary. You'd be filing a court order to get out of here if, you, if, I, if I didn't stop. But uh, one question. In, in the documentary, you talk a lot uh, in various places about how religion has informed uh, the art form coming out of um, hymns and, and uh, church scenes, so many different lives. It also works the reverse. Uh, of course, I remember being a little boy in a Southern Baptist church in South Mississippi and seeing a man and a woman doing the, the solo uh, that, that Sunday morning singing a song. And the way they were holding their microphones and kind of leaning into one another, I recognized at the time, wait a minute, they're imitating Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton singing Islands in the Stream or something like that. And I think completely unconsciously, it was just a cultural sort of downstream to the church. Do you think that as we move into a time of secularization and and, and some people would say a post-Christian sort of America— that this relationship between religion and the art form will change. Uh, and I think of uh, Stephen King's new book, he talks about how haunted, uh, the, the protagonist talks about how haunted he is by the hymns and by Tammy Wynette's Stand By Your Man. He, he puts them almost together. Uh, do you think that relationship will continue or will it be different? I think, you know, I, I think it's so embedded in this art form. I, I can't, I, I can't imagine there's so many different parts to it, but this is one of the integral uh, parts to it that we've talked about the Saturday night, Sunday morning thing, which, you know, is, is part of human nature. Um, and I, I just can't imagine that that, you know, that those two pistons, if you will, of the drive uh, country music can operate on just one of them. You know, I would even say, you know, you can take it into a larger context of transcendence, whether it's specifically Christian or not, is part of what people seek. And Christianity is one of the biggest and longest expressions of that. But uh, I, I, I think it's, you know, I think it's, you know, it's just embedded in, um, embedded in the music. I, I, I agree with Dayton wholeheartedly. I, I think that there's been in every era that the United States has existed um, a sense, a lament, uh, never true that uh, we were going to become a godless or secular uh, kind of society. And, and these things go in waves, just as we've talked about the various fashions within and changes within country music. And so I think all of these are, are tributaries of the same river, you know, and somebody's got a much rocky and bumpy stream down to smoother sailing. Somebody's smooth from the very beginning all the way out. But what we're looking for are answers to big questions. Who am I? What am I doing here? 
what is the nature of my existence? What's the purpose of my life? Uh, is there another life? These are all the questions that art as well as religion animate. And sometimes the commerce that connects itself to art gets in the way. And sometimes, frankly, the religion, the dogmatic and formal aspects of faith get in the way of, of actual faith. And so this will ebb and flow. But as, as Dayton says, you know, you're not, it, it, you know, if you're perceiving that it's fallen into a rut, as Dr. Moore, you mentioned earlier, it's probably because one of those two engines, one of those two pistons isn't firing. And that what is it back in the past is somebody saying, this is, I think this is more authentic. And what is authentic, but asking these very central questions, which art and religion and, and just ordinary life go often ignoring, try to address. Somehow, one way or the other, Jesus comes like a stranger in the night, I guess, is, the, is, is what happens. Well, Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan, thank you. Thank you more than I can say for being on Signpost today. Uh, this is a, uh, again, I could have this conversation for hours on end, and I'm grateful to both of you for taking the time to do this. It's, it's well, our pleasure you. to talk about this for hours as well. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Our, the original film was about 40 hours, so, you know, cut, it, we, we cut it down to 16. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand from sermon writing how that could go as well. Well, thank you both. Uh, the, the documentary series is Country Music, and the book is the same name. I recommend both of them to you, as well as the album that you can find wherever you buy music. Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan. Thanks for listening here to Signpost. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or Pocket Casts or wherever you listen. And check out the new Russell Moore podcast as well for teaching and questions and the cross in the jukebox on country music. Uh, leave a review. That helps us for people to find the show. And if you're listening on a smartphone, tap the cover art and you can find the show notes, including links to where you can find uh, these resources. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts.